I'm Agbad. And I'm Sarah. Welcome to Changing Gears, where we explore research perspectives that go against the grain. In this episode, we focus on the power of local traditional knowledge. Italian filmmaker Federico Fellini once said that a different language is a different vision of life. And nobody knows this better than social and cultural anthropologists. Our guest for this episode has spent much of his career working with the Nagay people of Flores, an island of Indonesia, looking at how they classify animals and people and how language shapes their perceptions and ideas. My name is Gregory Forth, and my position here is professor in the Department of Anthropology. Dr. Gregory Forth has a rather impressive resume. With over 40 years of experience in the field of anthropology, he completed graduate school at the prestigious Oxford University before working at the British Institute of Southeast Asia. Dr. Forth has been with the University of Alberta since 1986. So what does he enjoy most about research? I, um, well, I, I enjoy so- solving puzzles, you know, trying to get to the, the bottom of things. So, mm-hmm. you know, I, I mean, I see ethnography largely as a, a kind of uh, detective, detective work, like detective work, and is, you know, working with, uh, with people, with, with uh, local people. I enjoy learning more um, about uh, um, uh, local languages, uh, particularly uh, concepts expressed in, uh, in languages which are very different from, from European mm-hmm. languages. So I, I do have some interest and involvement in uh, what's usually called linguistic anthropology um, as well. Mm-hmm. I think that sounds pretty ideal. Dr. Forth has done extensive work in folk zoology and taxonomy, and this was the focus of our interview with him. So, first, we asked him to describe folk zoology, also known as ethnozoology. Quite simply, it's the study of what people uh, in general, or specific groups, ethno-linguistic groups uh, of people think or or know about um, non-human animals. Not just uh, what they know about them, but uh, various ways in which they uh, they think or, or represent uh, those, those animals. For example, in various kinds of uh, symbolism, how, how they use animals, uh, practically you might say, or, or economically, but also uh, in ritual. So, in a way, scientific zoology is just one way of looking at animals, and folk zoology is a conglomerate of many other ways of looking at animals broken up by language or culture or ethnicity. Think of it like the difference between knowing the name in English for something and the scientific name for something. For example, what do you call that large, gangly animal that many of us see as a Canadian cultural symbol? Uh, you mean a moose? Exactly! Most Anglophones in Canada know the term moose and know what it means. The scientific name for this animal is Alcees Alcees, And that name might have more meaning in the academic community or across linguistic barriers, as we all use the same Latin names. But you won't see your average Canadian calling them Alcees Alcees. No. (laughs) So, we've got moose and Alcees Alcees. However, a European visitor to Canada might ask to see elk. Um, but elk aren't moose. They're more like a large deer. That's true. In Canada, the word elk describes a different animal than a moose or Elsie's Elsie's. But in Europe, the word moose isn't used, and instead elk describes what we call a moose. Okay. Okay, so Canadians and Europeans have different concepts of, or names for, this big gangly animal, and these are like folk zoologies. 
And then scientific zoology describes this animal in a way that appeals to cross-cultural scientific communities, but not so well to most other people. Exactly. Although, keep in mind that the name for an animal is just one aspect of our knowledge of that animal. So names are just one small part of zoology. Okay, so I think we've got a hold of folk zoology. Now, what about folk taxonomy? Well, first, let's just talk about taxonomy. Okay, so taxonomy is the way we classify animals and other living things. We can do this in different ways, and usually we group things according to their similarities. These can be physical similarities, functional similarities, genetic, evolutionary similarities, etc. So birds is a large group of animals that we recognize as being similar because they have feathers, they lay eggs, and in most cases, they fly. And then within this category, we have more subcategories, such as waterfowl, birds that spend a lot of time in or near water and are capable swimmers. And folk taxonomy is therefore the taxonomy of a particular cultural, ethnic, or linguistic group. So these words are used, bird and waterfowl, would belong to an English language folk taxonomy. A scientific taxonomy would use scientific names and the categories might differ from or even be more specific than our English concepts. And other groups of people will classify the natural world in different ways with different names and groups. Taxonomy, folk taxonomy, yeah, well, that's simply the way that uh, people in general classify the natural world. How they form and maintain categories of animals so through their language, how they relate those categories one to uh, one to another, whether they think that bats are a kind of bird or a kind of mammal. Most people think they're uh, a kind of bird, by the way, but even in uh, the King James Bible that they're referred to as one of the, the fowls of the air. Okay, wait. Bats are birds? That's a neat way to think of it, but pretty different from how we see it. I agree. Um, so, of course, we had to ask Dr. Forth if he had ever told someone who thought bats were birds that he thought they were mammals. I mean, I wouldn't straightforwardly contradict them, but I have discussed such, <laughs> such matters. I mean, they, uh, one group of the people, group of people I work with mostly called the, the Nage. We can say that they, they classify uh, bats as birds. What they classify uh, bats as, uh, more specifically, you could say, is flying animals. At the same time, that's not to be taken too literally because grasshoppers and flying insects and so on aren't included. The most central or prototypical members of that category are indeed you know, true birds, aves. Uh, bats are included, uh, but at the same time they recognize that bats are, are unusual birds, they're kind of peripheral. Uh, and, and they do indeed recognize that large bats, at least, um, big flying foxes, um, don't lay eggs. You know, they, they give, give birth live, like, like, like animals, and they, have, they don't have feathers, they have fur and so on. So there is a kind of qualification uh, there as, uh, as well. All right, now back to taxonomy. Dr. Forth expanded a bit more on our tendency as a species to classify things. Human beings, and, and through language largely, uh, although not exclusively, uh, break the world up in, into bits and classify uh, all, all sorts of things, not just animals and plants and so on, but uh, other human beings according to uh, one kind of category or, or another. Kin categories, for example, categories like uncle or, or nephew or yeah. cousin. So these, these, are, uh, these are words, uh, a nomenclature that we use all the time. And I might just say, I mean, a large part of uh, um, folk uh, zoology concerns classification or taxonomy. 
social anthropology as a whole, you could say, is largely uh, concerned with, uh, with with classification of various uh, various sorts. You know? How people uh, conceive of the world, things in it, and how they relate those things to one another. So our tendency to classify things extends beyond the natural world to ourselves. And just like we have different taxonomies for plants and animals, we have different category systems for groups of people too. I really like the inclusion of kin categories here. For example, in English, we have terms like uncle and aunt to describe the siblings of our parents. But I also speak Somali, and in Somali we have more specific terms. So habariyar would be mother-sister, and edo would be my father-sister, but both are simply aunt in English. Or aunt, if you're fancy. (laughs) Sure. Now, after getting the basics down for what is scientific taxonomy versus what is folk taxonomy, we asked Dr. Forth how these systems relate to each other. He told us that there is a general consensus in anthropology that they are basically the same sort of thing, and you can almost consider science as a type of folk. In other words, scientists are a group united by language or culture, the scientific method, and scientific nomenclature. However, we should keep in mind that scientific taxonomy is a much more specialized approach, and the conscious effort that goes into creating scientific taxonomy does set it more apart from folk taxonomies. And then he broke down the four rules that tend to govern all taxonomies, folk and scientific alike. First, taxonomies have hierarchies, or classes of organisms contained within other classes of organisms. So for example, A duck is a type of waterfowl, which is a type of bird, which is a type of animal. Second, categories don't overlap. So birds, mammals, and fish are all distinct categories. In other words, the things which define birds do not also define mammals, and thus only one of these groups has feathers. Stemming from that, the third rule is mutual exclusivity. This means that an organism can't belong to one category at the same level if it already belongs to another category. So a duck is a bird, but it is not also a fish. And finally, transitivity. Basically, if a duck is a bird, and birds are a type of animal, then ducks are a type of animal. Oh, and there's one other similarity that Dr. Forth has noticed, although we won't call it a guiding principle. You find among local people, local zoologists, as they might be called, uh, local people, you find the same sort of disagreement. Yeah. Uh, sometimes, as you find among professional uh, professional biologists and you know, scientific taxonomists, um, the distinction of lumpers and, and splitters, which you, you probably know about, can also be, <laughs> can all, also be found. Um, yeah. So it's a tendency which is, is you know, quite general. Given these similarities between the guiding principles of folk and scientific taxonomy, We wanted to know if Dr. Forth had experienced cases where a folk taxonomy had been used to inform scientific taxonomy. There's a case where uh, local people recognize the existence of uh, freshwater turtles on on Flores Island specifically. Um, So far, um, herpetologists, scientific herpetologists, uh, haven't haven't discovered these, Uh, but but might well do so, uh, assuming that... uh, they still survive. There's good uh, evidence that they've survived until recent uh, recent times, recent decades. So that's a way in which uh, folk taxonomy, folk zoology, can contribute mm-hmm. to uh, scientific zoology or biology. Interestingly, 
This work has been published in two papers in the journal Herpetological Review. Dr. Forth believes there is more room for folk taxonomy and folk zoology to inform science, and that local knowledge is more important than science had previously acknowledged. Although I will say that I was uh, uh, quite surprised at, at the, these specifically uh, being, uh, being accepted because it wasn't by uh, you know, professional herpetologist. And indeed, uh, the, um, the data, the, the evidence I talk about is ethnographic. It, it concerns uh, reports by, uh, by local people, yeah. aspects of their language and classification, okay. and so on, concerning animals rather than uh, about a, a, a direct investigation into you know, the, the, animal, the animal itself. I think this really speaks to the value of folk taxonomy and zoology. And I hope that the scientific community continues to seek out traditional knowledge as a reputable information source. I agree. And our next topic really demonstrates this as well. Since we knew Dr. Forth spent years doing research on the island of Flores, Indonesia, I had one thing in mind that I had to ask about. The Flores Man. Right. So in 2003, a team of Australian and Indonesian paleontologists and archaeologists found a nearly complete skeleton of a hominid on Flores Island. This essentially led to the discovery of an entirely new species, Homo floresiensis. This species was described as human-like, about one meter tall, and with a head the size of a grapefruit. I remember when this happened. I even read the National Geographic article. <laughs> it was fascinating to me that fairly recently we had coexisted with another member of the Homo genus, an evolutionary sibling, if you will. It really made us wonder if there is some sort of record of their interaction with the locals too. And so we asked Dr. Forth if he had come across references to the Flores man among the Nagay people. Back in the 1980s, in fact, uh, um, soon after I arrived on Flores, uh, in the Nagay region in particular, I, I accidentally came across a story about this population of small kind of ape-like humans that uh, used to live uh, way up on the volcano, on the side of the volcano in a particular cave or, or series of, of caves. My ears kind of pricked up because uh, I um, I encountered similar images, similar ideas on the island of Sumba, another Indonesian island where, where I'd done my doctoral research back in the 1970s. It wasn't the main topic of my research at the time, but it was certainly interesting and I, I, kind, of, uh, I kind of followed it up. So um, when I heard about the uh, discovery of, of the, uh, the remains of Homo floresiensis, I, uh, uh, I, I was very, very interested because the, the, the reconstruction of Homo floresiensis, which appeared in press and online and everywhere else, the Hobbit, yeah, <laughs> um, you know, it, it matched uh, um, descriptions of, uh, of this small human-like uh, creature. I'm still exploring these, these images because there are other similar ones in other parts of, of the island. Um, <clears throat> Flores is, is a fairly small island, well, it's 300 kilometers, 400 kilometers long. No? Not that small. But uh, it's very mountainous and it, it's difficult to travel about, so that uh, to say that two groups are uh, 50 kilometers apart is like uh, you know, two separate countries. Uh, um, uh, concerning something, the thing about the Nage wild man, as they call him, uh, or her, is that they're supposed to have been rendered extinct by local populations. They wiped out so they are no longer. Um, but if you go uh, further east, you, see, you hear reports about uh, these things which uh, were uh, similar things, which were supposed to have, have uh, 
you know, been encountered by by people um, recently, if not you know, right to uh, right to the mm-hmm. present. So I, I know it's fascinating me. One reason for the fascination is because these things seem not to be conceived uh, as uh, as supernatural mm-hmm. uh, beings, of which there are plenty around in, in the folk religion, as it could be called. Um, they, they are described largely naturalistically. Yeah, so so you know, spirits are not usually seen except by certain favoured individuals, whereas these things uh, could be seen, can be seen by any other by anybody. So the locals have knowledge of the species, and they know it is not supernatural because there have been many sightings. It is also known to locals of a neighboring island. This would suggest that there could be more Homo floresiensis findings in the future. Another win for local knowledge and folk zoology. Definitely. It's really impressive that the Nagay retained a knowledge of this species long after it was believed to have gone extinct. As our interview came to a close, we asked Dr. Forth for some final thoughts on the role things like traditional knowledge and folk zoology can play in future decision-making or conservation policy. Well, I, I think, you know, the people who are most directly in, in contact uh, are knowledgeable about uh, uh, those, those species, our, our, our local, local people. Well, also, you know, the behavior of local people um, affects uh, sustainability and, and uh, the extent to which uh, populations of animals, say, are um, reduced or, or maintained. I mean, there are other factors as well, such as, uh, yeah, you know, extra-local agencies, governments and so on that, that affect this for sure. But, um, yeah, if you want to conserve, uh, uh, help sustain a, a species, it, it is uh, very important to find out what local people know about about them. And Dr. Forth brought us back to the example of the freshwater turtles on Flores Island. He said that these turtles were once considered a supernatural being, and thus to hunt and eat them was considered taboo. More recently, however, changes to local beliefs, such as the conversion of many to Catholicism, has seen the weakening of taboos. Now, some locals will eat the turtles and can describe the best cooking methods. This change in local attitude towards these turtles is yet another factor that must be considered when we talk about policy and conservation. Okay, so in this episode, we learned about folk zoology and taxonomy, the intrinsic value of these things, and the way that they can be used to inform our scientific views of the world. And I think we also learned how to think critically about our own views and perceptions of things like the natural world. Remember, our English language concept of the natural world is only one of many different concepts. That's our show. Thank you, Dr. Forth, and thank you for listening.